Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. In this episode, we are asking what Ukrainians are trying to tell the world. We are making this episode in partnership with the podcast The War Special by Osnovy Show, launched by Osnovy Publishing, a famous Ukrainian publishing house led by Dana Pavlichko. Dana is the host of this conversation in which we are discussing the wicked, negative, lose-lose, imperialist and expansionist logic of the Russian Federation. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of ukraineworld.org. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We are using a big part of your donations to help Ukrainian resistance and people affected by this war. patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Osnova show and I am your host Dana Pavlichko. This is our war special where we discuss in detail what is happening in Ukraine. Hi everyone, this is the episode five of the Osnova show, our war special. And today we have a very exciting episode because we are talking to Volodymyr Yermolenko, who except for many titles that he holds. He is the founder of a very popular podcast on Ukraine that many people are listening to, and myself as well. So there are a lot of things I want to discuss with him on what is happening with Ukraine and the war right now. Volodymyr, hi. Hello, thank you so much. I'm happy to be with you. Uh, Volodymyr, how how are you doing personally? How are you coping with everything that's happening? This is month three. Well, it's difficult, of course, psychologically. It's difficult because uh, the major feeling I have is that uh, I'm not doing enough, you know, and uh, I'm not in the army. I'm trying to, we're, we're trying with my wife to to help a lot, to do the volunteer job, to uh, do a lot of in uh, in the information space. But I think everybody, everybody who is uh, not on the front line, uh, they're they're having this feeling that they're they should be there, for example, and it's psychologically it's very very difficult. Uh, and of course, when you look at at the Facebook, it's like everything you see is is the information about people killed, people wounded, and uh, and everything like that. So it's it's difficult psychologically also to uh, to accept. But otherwise, of course. Um, there is also a feeling that the nation is very consolidated and uh, everybody's trying to do something. Uh, people who are, for example, are abroad, uh, uh, trying to do a lot of a lot of things abroad to, to raise the awareness of, of this war. People who stay here uh, in Ukraine, uh, are either in the front line or helping the front line or helping the people who are, uh, who are uh, affected by the war, uh, so there is a feeling of this consolidated nation. Uh, we often have this feeling in Ukraine. Uh, but of course, uh, one of the most dramatic things is that we don't know where, when it when it will end. And uh, if we look at it realistically, what's happening, uh, my feeling that it is again going to last for many years. It already lasts for eight years since 2014. 
and I don't have a feeling that it will end soon. When you say it will last for many years, do you mean the general conflict, well, the, the war with Russia and having Putin in power, or us trying to get Kherson, Zaporizhia back, or us getting uh, Crimea back, or, or, or everything? Well, I think that, uh, of course, many Ukrainians are feeling uh, in the terms that, look, uh, uh, we should defeat Russia, Ukraine should win, uh, and I'm, I'm obviously in this, in this line of thinking. And I do believe that if we uh, look at it from the historical perspective, that Russian Empire is is living through the last stages of its its collapse. But we don't know how many years it will take. Uh, if uh, I think for Ukrainians, what what's happening now is very different to what was happening in 2014-15, because uh, at that time. Mm, many people perceive this war as a, as a as a distant war, as the war going in Donbas. Not everybody was convinced that we should do everything to take Crimea and Donbas back. L- l- let's be frank. I think now it's changing uh, because the more the enemy is coming to closer uh, to the places to 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 to, to places like Kiev, to to places like Kharkiv the more it is perceived as a, as a war we cannot escape, we cannot avoid. And therefore, when Ukrainians are thinking that, look, we should definitely take Kherson back because we, we, we saw how, how Ukrainians were, were there resisting this ho- horrible invasion, it means that we will never stop. Ukrainians will not accept any, any stopping because uh, if we take Kherson back, we will we will need to take Crimea back. If we take uh, now, there are battles in Severodonetsk in Luhansk Oblast. If we take Severodonetsk back, we need to take Donetsk back. And uh, in this sense, I think that Ukrainians are becoming much more decisive than uh, when than we were in 2014. So, do you feel like if? A couple of months ago, we didn't even hope for the possibility of getting, let's say, Crimea back. And and now we feel it's a possibility, even if it's a distant possibility. It's a psychological possibility because uh, we already have victories in our in our recent history. Uh, that myth that Russian army, it's better not to provoke it, not to take it, not to and not to touch it because they are much stronger than anybody. This myth has collapsed at least twice in the Battle of Kiev and in the Battle of Kharkiv. And uh, I think this psychological uh, psychological change that Ukrainians have will, will be able to change a lot of things. Uh, of course, now we are still losing territories uh, in, in the Donbass, in the southern of Ukraine, but there is lots of talk, as you know, about Ukrainian counteroffensive, and for that, for that counteroffensive, Ukrainians really do need heavy weapons, uh, which are now supplied from the West, but supplied maybe not with the speed uh, that that we we could expect. What's your feeling, Dana? Because I'm I'm also interested how you how you feel about it. Well, I feel that from for I I think it's 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 horrible and it's it's a tragedy, and finally. 
we are, you know, from a different perspective, we are united, we are one. And this is really, you know, the birth of a nation at this point. And we have a chance to build, you know, the Ukraine after after victory, a Ukraine that we, you know, we dream of, you know. And uh, now, on one hand, it's, it's great to hear that there is a possibility that we can return Crimea, for example. But I realize that this will take time. And I worry that the longer the war continues, the harder it's going to be for us, for people, for everyone, for the West. You know, I, I, I really don't want people to get fatigued with, with this war. I don't want in a year's time for, for people to be, you know, bored somewhere that or, or even forget what's happening with Ukraine. But from a different perspective, I really think that we are a lot and we are very determined. Exactly. That's, that's my feeling as well. But there is time, there is a logic of time, always. And there is always, always be a fatigue from the war. There are always, and, and we see this fatigue already in the West. Therefore, we hear this, we, these calls uh, from different uh, voices already in the West that, okay, uh, we, should, uh, we should seek some, some compromise at the expense of Ukraine, and Ukraine should cede some of the territories. Uh, unfortunately, we should also be prepared for that. So my, my feeling is that, it will not, of course, go to the business as usual, uh, but there will be some regress in the way how the world perceives this war. Um, and and Ukrainians should be prepared for that. And, and that's a very difficult task uh, because in the first months of the war, I mean, yeah, of this full-scale invasion, uh, we are in the center of, of attention, uh, but... Uh, our experience shows that this attention does not last very long. And after that, we need to draw this attention again and again. And this is, this is, uh, this is what you're doing, what uh, I'm doing. But this, we understand this is not a very easy task. It's not an easy task and it's a full-time job, I think, for everyone. That, and this is a job. We are working for this to end in victory for us and we have to be prepared for a marathon. Exactly. And uh, I think Russia is ruthless, you know, and, and you have to realize that, that, that they will pull out all the stops. So this brings me to, to, to this topic that's, you know, really just driving me insane is I feel that there has been a very serious information campaign by Russia in the last couple of weeks to push out this narrative for... Ukraine to seize some of its territories, to appease Russia. And uh, I was flabbergasted by the New York Times editorial that has basically offered, uh, is recommending Ukraine to seize some of its territories. Do you feel like this is an information campaign, you know, by, by Russia? Or do you think that, you know, some people genuinely believe these just to me, it seems bizarre views? Mm, I think I think uh, people believe in this uh, in uh, especially in France and Germany. Uh, by New York Times, we see that there are people who believe in this in, in the United States. And um, 
I think, and I think that they're living really in in a big naivete, because uh, what Ukrainians were trying to explain since 2014 is that the very idea, the very idea of Russian political project today, is an idea that uh, there can be no borders for Russian for Russian political project. Do you think that in France and Germany there there is this genuine naivete about what is happening with the situation or are there a lot of Russian agents in, in, in Europe or there has been a lot of Russian influence over the last 30 years? There has been a lot, of course. There has been a lot of Russian money, but I think we should not overestimate it. Uh, I think there is uh, a certain logic in a certain number of people who are still thinking that we can approach Russia with the with the positive sum game uh, logic, meaning that if we give something to Russia, then Russia will give something in return. And this is just precisely not happening because Russians are living according to a different logic. I'm calling it a, a logic of negative sum game. It's not a win-win logic, but a lose-lose logic in which Russia is prepared to lose, but its aim is to make the other lose more. And this is absolutely different logic. The West is living according to the logic that everybody should win in a transaction, in a, in a, in a, a every particular communication. The Russia, Russia is living in a logic that everybody should lose, but Russia should lose less than the other. Therefore, it is prepared for the war, for destruction of Ukraine, for destruction of its own economy, uh, but it hopes that the destruction of, of, the, of their enemy, of the collapse of their enemy, will be bigger. And uh, that, that's the problem, I think. That's the problem. Uh, so we, w- while these people are saying, okay, we, you should give something to Russia, uh, my point is that uh, this logic should turn into a different one. We should take something from, from Russia, not give something to Russia. Because only taking something from Russia, uh, defeating Russia on, on any particular front, will, will help us uh, furthermore negotiate with Russia one day. Because Russia uh, will negotiate only if it loses. Uh, at one day. And this naivete also, I think, it is related to the fact that they they think that Russia will only seek some territorial gains. That there are some territories that are needed for Russia strategically and uh, Russia will just not be able to exist without these territories. I think that was probably valid for some point, uh, at some point for, for Crimea, because uh, Russia needed Crimea as a military base to control the Black Sea, as we see right now, so it is able to block, uh, to blockade the Black Sea and its trade routes. But concerning Donbass, concerning other territories, it's just needless for Russia. Russia doesn't need that, doesn't need them in the resource uh, way, doesn't need need them in the, in a symbolic way. The logic why they keep on expanding is that because they cannot conceive their statehood without expanding. This is the problem of, uh, of Russian imperialism, formulated by Russian thinkers uh, as well. They understand even our enemies, uh, but we need to know our enemies. They understand that if Russia does not expand, it will collapse. If Russia does not expand its borders, uh, as Surkov said, export the chaos outside, the chaos will 
will be imported and will implode Russia from within. That's what they understand. So if we give some territories to Russia, it doesn't mean that it will stop because it will use these territories to attack us more, to get some new territories and so on and so forth endlessly. What we see from this war is that, for example, the genocide in Mariupol wouldn't have happened if there, if there had been no Crimea occupation, right? Uh, every occupation leads to another occupation. That's the truth. Definitely, definitely, for sure. And uh, this is, you know, this has been the Russian way of, of, of doing things for for a very long time. And, you know, this is something that, I think in Europe, for example, some people see this as Putin's war, as opposed to seeing this as, you know, in the broader understanding of this being a Russian imperialist war. Do you think that's correct? Absolutely. I think that uh, it is very naive to think that it is Putin's war. I mean, there is a bad Putin and good Russians. Uh, it doesn't mean that I believe that all Russians are bad. Of course not. Uh, there are there are very good and brave people, but unfortunately they are in minority and they don't have any any visible and viable concept of what Russia can be. And that's make a, a huge difference to Ukraine because Ukrainian intellectual and political history always had this alternative idea. What Ukraine would be if it's not a part of the empire. It comes from the medieval times. It comes from the early modern Baroque times, from the Cossack era, from the 19th century Ukrainian intellectuals, from Ukrainian leftists of the early 20th century. We have this idea and this idea is very simple. Ukraine should be a republic. Uh, in which uh, uh, many different actors will have their rights and liberties and will be able to protect them. Uh, Russian political project, unfortunately, was not formed in this way. It was initially formed as an imperial political project with the idea of uh, Moscow as the third Rome, with the idea of Russian empire. And that's the problem because... uh, Unfortunately, I don't see how Russians can conceptualize their their statehood without saying that we are not a state, but we are something bigger. Uh, Some of them are saying that they are a civilization, separate civilization. Others are saying that they are an empire. And this is very deeply in the minds of people. What surprises me when when I hear the Vox Populi from Russia, done by uh, some uh, brave media who are still working in Russia, Many people asked, what do you think about this war? Uh, Reply very simply, actually, if our leadership, meaning Putin, decided that this war is needed, then this war is needed. So they they don't have any agency of thinking, of responsibility in themselves. Again, let me repeat that it is not not all the Russians who are saying that. We see also the, the sound voices. But of course, but unfortunately, very many people think like that. And that's the problem. What do you think? Because there is, there is in Ukraine this debate whether there are good Russians or, or no good Russians. I, I personally think that obviously there's great people and, um, and, and fantastic and very brave people. But for the most part, even some, you know, really great Russians that, I mean, I, I see that they're on Ukraine's side, have an imperialist colonial paradigm of thinking. And um, it's something stronger than them. 
And I think this is why I do believe that this is a time, you know, for Ukrainian voices. And while this war is happening, I am very much a big supporter and advocate of a boycott of Russian culture, for example, because I don't want to decide or, 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 or research, you know, what is the, you know, opinion of, 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 of this and this person, you know, what is their uh, role, you know, what has been their role, you know, before the, the war. And uh, I, I do believe that, that Russia as a nation has to say that we are at fault. We are, have been in fault for a very long time, and, and this is horrible. Also, unfortunately, I don't hear that very often, and I don't hear that very often even from Russians living abroad who have nothing to fear. You know what I mean? Yes, because this is precisely what I'm saying. It's difficult for them to accept that Russia as a political idea uh, has has the guilt. And it's not only about Putin, because it goes back to Stalin, and then it goes back to Russian Empire, and then it goes back to Catherine II, and it goes back to Peter I, to Ivan the Terrible, and, 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 and so on and so forth. It's very difficult for them. Therefore, their dilemma and their big task is to... Uh, for Russians is to develop another another concept of Russia, uh, which will probably be a nation state, which will mean that Russia will uh, will need to end its imperialism, which will uh, mean that uh, the, there should be a decolonization of the Russian Federation, not only of the Soviet Union, which should mean that many ethnicities in inside Russia, which have the Ugrophenic background, Turkic background. Uh, Caucasian nations, Mongolic nations, they will need to to have some at least real autonomy or even independence. And that's very difficult for Russia, Russia to accept. Therefore, when they are thinking of Ukraine, they're thinking of Ukraine in two, two, two ways. Uh, they are either thinking that Ukraine is a, a bad version of Russia, and this is what uh, Russian imperialists say, or they're saying that Ukraine is a good version of Russia, the better version of Russia. This is what Russian liberals are saying. So they, they find it hard to accept that Ukraine has nothing to do, actually, with Russia, and it's neither a good version nor bad version. It's just Ukraine with its own culture, with its own traditions, and uh, maybe at some point in in 100 years we will be able to live, uh, uh, you know, in the way how the French and Germans are living right now after after years and and, and centuries of of struggling. But uh, that will need for them to accept that Ukraine is a different country, which is not a not a just a small brother or small sister and which in many ways is just has its own path and its own values. What do you think? Uh, for sure, for sure. And um, I think that uh, that is definitely true. And I would also like to voice a thought that, you know, has been always getting on my nerves. And, and even now this is happening a bit when, you know, the international community wants to somehow unite Ukraine and, and Russia, you know, in a group. And, and now, you know, there's even a desire, you know, to, to have some sort of peacemaking, you know, a Ukrainian and, for example, and, and, and a Russian woman walked together 
at some event organized by the Pope. And um, I don't think that's that's something that shows that the world understands Ukraine or Russia or this war. Exactly. I think uh, there are very bad analogies which have been made. For example, the analogy with the First World War. Many people think in this way. Uh, like uh, during the First World War, everybody got crazy, patriotic, and thinking only about the, 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 their nation, etc. But the First World War was a was an imperialistic war between different empires in which there were no good guys. Here in this war, we clearly see who is invader and who is the victim, and uh, asking the victim to to make peace with the invader is very, very strange because first the invader has to stop the invasion, then it should uh, give back all the territories, should pay for the destruction, unable, of course, to pay uh, for the human lives which are which are lost. Uh, and then probably at some point uh, we will be able uh, to discuss it. But only after the big... The big repentance, and uh, we don't see that. We don't see that in, um, in in Russian society, even among the the liberal part of it, anti-Putinist part of it. Not so much, not so much, unfortunately. Yes, yes, definitely. I I, I keep watching for, for these, you know, for phrases, for signs of of really being genuinely repentant, and. Um, I, 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 I don't see this this at all, to tell you the truth. So, um, you know, this is just says something about, you know, the Russian society. Another issue that's, that's you know, following us and, and, and annoying me all, all the time is yet again going back to Russian so-called, you know, people who fight for freedom, you know, quote unquote, because th there are definite, you know, dissidents in Russia. But then there are cases with, let's say, Maria Ovsannikova, this this lady, if uh, our audience doesn't know, who worked at the main channel in Russia, and then she showed up with a poster saying, you know, stop the war in Ukraine. And now she's a you know, quote unquote, freedom fighter in, in, in Europe. And now she actually received a Václav Havel prize for, for peace or, or freedom of speech or something. So, I mean, I just think that's obscene. I, I really think that this is, she's not the person who has to receive such a prize. And I think that the world should, should, you know, have, you know, people from Ukraine honored. Absolutely, absolutely. I think uh, the world is still living uh, many people uh, in in a, in this illusion that well, if we look at Eastern Europe, then we, we see only Russia, uh, and uh, only in Russia there are people who fight uh, against this totalitarianism and etc. Uh, Maria Vsaniko is really uh, a person, very dubious personality, and uh, this symbolization of her. Uh, Contrary to the to the work which is done by Ukrainian journalists who who are doing a great job on the on the front line, or it's fantastic work done by many Ukrainian journalists. Uh, but look, it also comes from the uh, from the tradition, right? So uh, from the tradition of thinking, for example, 
whom the West knew uh, during the Soviet Union when, when they talked about dissidents. They knew for primarily Russian dissidents like Sakharov or Solzhenitsyn. And when we were telling them that, look, Solzhenitsyn, it's just another another way of Russian imperialism, they just didn't believe us. And I remember all those fantastic exhibitions, expositions, which were made in beautiful uh, European capitals uh, honoring Solzhenitsyn. Without these people who were specializing in Russian culture, without these people understanding that there is a whole bunch of Russian imperialistic narrative which comes back with Solzhenitsyn. And Solzhenitsyn is a, is a person that is really in the line of thinking of the so-called Russian religious philosophy, which was very anti-Western always, which was very archaic, uh, which was very anti-democratic, uh, anti, of course, anti-Ukrainian. So we all know that. Unfortunately, Ukrainians are much better specialists in Russia than uh uh, some specialists in Russia in the West, but uh, nobody wanted to hear us. And nobody really wanted to pay attention to Ukrainian dissident voices, uh, to Georgian dissident voices, Armenian dis- dissident voices, Jewish dissident voices, unfortunately. And I think this is the time to to unlock unlock this and, and look at the, even at the history of the Soviet Union and the history of the dissidents there, not from the Russian eyes. Yeah. I don't think even now, with with all the horrors happening with Ukraine, there is, you know, full desire to disregard Russia to a certain extent and listen to what Ukrainians have to say and listen to our voices and, 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 and see our culture, for example. Because Russian, yet again, going back to, to the question of why culture is such a big deal and it's so important because through culture Russia pushes its agenda and through culture I think in the West it's easier to you know for them to still support Russia and respect Russia even though you know there might be help for Ukraine and uh, and then you have these dubious voices you know coming in and 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 pushing a a pro-russian narrative absolutely i think that that's that's what i'm trying to say to uh, our colleagues throughout the world uh including in the west for example uh let's let's just think about russian culture in the way how you think about your culture you are studying right now or for example, in France, people are studying French literature with a certain perspective like, okay, let's look at the way how, for example, it was uh, it was uh, injected with Orientalism, so-called Orientalism or Imperialism. If we study Flaubert, Salambo Flaubert, let's, let's look how the uh, Imperialist Orientalism was in Flaubert. If we study Engre, for example the paintings of Engre, let's see how he constructed the image, the specific image of the Middle East, for example, which was definitely colonial. If we study Kipling, or if we study, I don't know, Joseph Conrad, let's study it from from this perspective. We should apply the same uh, approach to the Russian culture. Because Russian culture has full of these imperialist narratives, we, you can be uh, you can love Dostoevsky, for example, and read it 
I'm, I'm talking to an ordinary French or, or German uh, student who will read Dostoevsky and just understand, oh, how, how rich it is, or oh, how there are abysses of psychology there. Okay, there are abysses of psychology, which I personally don't like because I don't like the abysses. I think Dostoevsky is just making the emotions, taking the human emotions and leading them to extremes and not, not searching for something uh, for, for balance. But let's look about the plot of, of his novels. For example, Bessie, The Demons, uh, which is basically saying that those people who are coming from Russia to Russia with Western educations, uh, Western education with Western ideas like Marxism, etc., they're demons. And probably Dostoevsky was right because he was uh, force, um, kind of a uh, forecasting the Bolshevik revolution, that, uh, the Bolshevik coup d'état. That, that's another problem of Russian culture when ideas coming from the West are just distorted in the way that they turn into authoritarianism. But the alternative to this is just archaic, of very fanatically orthodox fundamentalist thinking that everything that is coming from the West is bad is awful, is demonic, is diabolical. And this is something that is present in the Russian culture. All the way through, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Vladimir Solovyov, Vladimir Ern, etc. And this is being reborn in the current Russian intellectual life. This is what we see right now on, on Russian television. Uh, a little bit of a different subject, but something that I'm following these days, and I, I'm wondering what you think... Is Ukraine getting the weapons we need? This is something we spoke at the beginning of the show. At this point, what's happening right now with weapons? Well, we see that uh, there is a, a big commitment of weapons, but they're coming very slowly. And uh, the big question is, of course, the question of time. Because uh, imagine Ukraine gets heavy weapons, but then Russia takes the, the, the cities. And uh, heavy weapons are very good, but uh, Ukrainians will not uh, shoot heavily their own cities, of course. Uh, the, the question is, for example, if there, are, there are now fights in Severodonetsk, uh, in Luhansk Oblast, and there is a possibility that Russian will, will, will capture it. What, what Ukrainians will do when there will be a counteroffensive? So... Every day of delays, unfortunately, uh, of delays in supply of the weapons just prolongs this war. So who's, who's delaying? From what I understand, there is a delay from France and Germany, and we're waiting for everything that's going to come from the U.S. via the land lease. Is this the case? I, I think one of the questions is, is to Europeans. One of the key questions is to Germans uh, because uh, sometimes they commit to something, then they delay, then there, there is a, a, an issue that uh, the German private companies uh, like uh, they are they're able to, to supply heavy weapons to Ukraine, but they need a sanction from the government and the government is reluctant to, to give the sanction to, to allow it. So I think we have now a, a very kind of a specific uh, position of, of the central European powers, uh, meaning the France and Germany, that are much more conservative than even the, even the European bureaucracy in Brussels. That's the paradox, because... Look at the way who visited Ukraine. Uh, 
uh, among the leaders. We are talking about uh, Scandinavian countries, we are talking about Poland, we are talking about some Eastern European countries, we are talking about Britain, of course, uh, one of the first b- big visits. We are talking about the uh, United States, the First Lady was there, then the, uh, the, the, the Defense Secretary, the... Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell. Exactly. And uh, But what about France? Well, yesterday I think we had... Uh, the visit finally of the French foreign minister, and tragically it uh, it coincided with the death of a French journalist. So this is also a sign that uh, for France it, it's time to wake up. Uh, but uh, we we didn't have a visit of President Macron. We didn't have a visit of Chancellor Scholz. Instead, we had visits early, very early. Uh, I think it was right after the visit of uh, Boris Johnson, of uh, European Commission President, of the European Council President, of the head of the EU diplomacy. And that's a very paradoxical way for me, because EU bureaucracy, which was considered as very conservative, very slow, is now much more active and much more decisive than the key European capitals. I mean, primarily Berlin, Paris and Rome. Do you think they will be pushed to support us the way we want to be supported? I don't know. That's a question for them. Obviously, they are just, uh, you know, they're risking of being beyond history, be be not not uh, not in line with history itself. A big question right now whether the EU will support the candidacy status for Ukraine. This, the, the decision should be taken on the European Council summit uh, in, in late June. And unfortunately, there are signals that uh, these key countries, uh, like France, Germany, Italy, uh, are not willing to be kind of engines to for this, so they're 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 not willing to take a decisive position. Let's just explain to our audience: we are talking about the candidacy status of Ukraine, so that Ukraine is uh, named the candidate for EU membership. That doesn't mean that Ukraine will join the European Union tomorrow. It will take probably a decade, but this candidacy is a very important symbolic gesture because if we don't get it now, we will not get it in a year or something. And uh, if, uh, again, it's not EU bureaucracy which is making it difficult to happen, it's primarily the, 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 the capitals of the key EU member states. And unfortunately, this will be a very, very bad development if it doesn't happen in late June. I, I really hope, but you know, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an optimist at heart. So I have a feeling that, you know, we are, you know, doing a very good job of pushing our messages across and we have great friends in, in Poland and in, in Baltic countries. And, and I mean, both people and, you know, heads of states and and government. And, you know, it's great that many people do understand that we need, we need this, you know, it's, it is a very important gesture and Ukraine is dying for peace in Europe. And, um, it's just very unfortunate that some European politicians choose not to understand this or choose to be, you know, outside of history. 
And frankly, I think it's just so crazy having people like Orban in Europe or having Marine Le Pen almost win elections. Can't these people understand that even if you don't care about Ukraine, if you let Russia win, you will have Marine Le Pens and Orbans everywhere possible because Russia sponsors, you know, horrible, marginal politicians and, and, and groups internationally. Absolutely. And uh, for me, this is also a shock to, to have Marine Le Pen get so many, so many voices and even a discussion in France that, uh, that she can win. Uh, but everything which, which Marine Le Pen is, is like touching upon in France, and I think everything which Orban touches upon in Hungary, is the question of sovereignty. So they really believe that they need to be more sovereign from Brussels or Washington. Well, let's 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 let them think in the way how they think. But basically, it's it's stupid f- for their part to think that Moscow will give them more sovereignty than than Brussels and Washington. Just uh, let them look at the countries which Russia invaded in recent years and think. Where does sovereignty come from? And Ukrainian fight is also a fight for sovereignty. It's also a fight for, for sovereignty from Russia, from, from much more horrible empire than any empire that any empires, any other empires that, uh, that we have known in, in history, probably. And to Germans, uh, uh, my message is very simple. Uh, look at Russian propaganda and see how often they raise the question that they need to go uh, up uh, up until Berlin. And if you think this, this is a fantasy, many people in Kiev were also thinking it was a fantasy that Russians will attack Kiev. M- myself, myself including. Yes, so they did attack Kiev. They did attack Kiev and they did commit uh, mass murders and genocide in Kiev suburbs. And we, we have lots of, lots of, believe me, lots of destruction not only houses, but primarily human lives in the villages around Kiev, which we're visiting very often right now. So if you think that uh, taking Berlin is uh, is a fantasy, um, look at your armed forces, I mean German armed forces, look at the number of your tanks, which are, uh, which are lesser than the number of tanks that Ukraine has, for example, uh, or and uh, dozens of times lesser than Russians are having. And uh, just think that they 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 can go uh, with a march through Europe if if they conquer Ukraine very easily, and this is the reality. Final question: What can people across the world do right now to help Ukraine? In your opinion, I think uh, first is uh, to understand that empathy, sympathy is very good, and we are really. Uh, we are really thankful for that. And uh, frankly, for me, it was a huge impression that that so many people support Ukraine, supported Ukraine. Uh, but to understand that empathy is not enough and there should be a, a big political demands to, 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 to the leaders of your countries. And the, the primary demand is to, to understand that Ukraine should win in this war. Not that Ukraine should not lose, or we should try to give Putin an opportunity to save his face, or we should find a compromise, whatever. We're not finding compromise with Hitler, you know. We're not finding compromise with people like that. 
uh, Ukraine can win in this war. Ukraine is much more motivated than Russian soldiers, which are don't understand what they are doing. And unfortunately, that's what we hear right now. Increasingly, it, we are facing with the big dehumanizing force, uh, which is which is Russia. This this is what what we hear in in the uh, phone interceptions, etc. So this is. A, a, a victory. This should be a victory not only of Ukrainians against Russians, but the victory of of a democracy against autocracy and of civilization against barbarism. This is this is how we perceive it. As simple as that. So, uh, giving more opportunities uh, for Ukraine to win means uh, more weapons supply, more economic support, and more sanctions against Russia. These are sanctions against Russia. We see that still halfway, because the key thing is oil and gas embargo, which was really cut Russia from its uh, sources. It's still a very far, far away, a really uh, very long road. Russia is earning one billion dollars per day on its gas and oil exports, and of course, it can fund its its army indefinitely. And uh, we should do our best, and the whole world should do our best to end this war as much as as, as quickly as, as possible. Definitely. Don't get tired, guys. We need the world's support. We need everyone supporting Ukraine. Protest. Pressure your local politician to send weapons to Ukraine. Uh, we need the weapons that we need. And we need to win and make sure you pressure your politicians to not support appeasement of Russia. Uh, Putin is Hitler. Uh, what is happening is horrible. And, but Ukraine will win, definitely. Volodymyr, thank you so much for this wonderful discussion and chat. And um, I hope to see you after victory in Kiev. Thank you very much, Dana. It's a great pleasure. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by UkraineWorld.org. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor at UkraineWorld.org. Let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash UkraineWorld. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. Subscribe to Ukraine World on social networks, Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. Follow our podcast on SoundCloud, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast and YouTube. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.